Well, I mentioned uh, that Kevin DeYoung book, uh, really highly recommended. What is the mission of the church um, in the world? But as I was thinking about this uh, weekend, I wanted to have um, most of our attention drawn to the things that the Bible says about the church uh, internally. Um, because the New Testament spends far more time thinking about how Christians are to behave towards one another, actually, than it does thinking about Christians or the church um, in the world. I said on Friday evening that phrase, one another, uh, comes up uh, again and again in the New, New Testament. In fact, there are a hundred uses of it, I think. A hundred times the New Testament says, uh, here is one way in which you are to behave towards one another. Love one another. Bear one another's burdens. Confess your sins to one another. Don't grumble against one another. Forgive one another. Don't envy one another. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. A lot of attention is given to how we are supposed to be treating each other in church. Uh, Presumably that emphasis is there because it's not easy, uh, because it doesn't come naturally to us to be uh, sacrificial, uh, to be loving, to be patient, to be hospitable, and all those other things that we're we're commanded to do. Uh, Christians need to be told these things. (coughs) They need to be told them a lot because they are hard. It is hard to be one another type people, uh, isn't it? Take it, I don't need to to persuade you of that Uh, this morning. Selfishness comes very naturally. Uh, We don't need to be reminded or told over and over again to look after ourselves or to forgive ourselves, to be patient with ourselves. Generally speaking, we're pretty good at that uh, when it comes to how I treat me. But it's a whole different ballgame when it comes to how I treat uh, other people, when it comes to being a one another type person. And one of the things that makes that causes that distinction, one of the things that makes it so hard to be a one another type person is the old enemy pride. Uh, John Stott once famously wrote that at every stage of our Christian development uh, and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. It's hard to argue with those mm-hmm. words, aren't they? Brilliantly uh, wise. In every sphere of our Christian discipleship, this is the greatest enemy, pride. Uh, And and of course, that includes the sphere of church life. Um, Pride is the thing that's going to get in there um, and ruin churches. Um, So we ought to feel about pride, I guess, like the residents of Salisbury feel about Novichok, if you remember uh, when that whole thing was was going on, this dreadful, lethal uh, substance that just the smallest trace of it uh, can linger and be so lethal. I think that's a good illustration for how we should feel about this great enemy of pride. And so to allow it to contaminate church would be uh, disastrous. It causes us to pursue personal glory, uh, usually at the expense of others. Um, I think it causes envy that we were thinking a bit more uh, about um, earlier. It causes us to look down on others. It discourages sacrifice and service and, and so on and so on. So how does the Bible teach us to root out pride? How are we going to confront this enemy and, and harpoon it? Uh, how do we get those people in Hazchem suits in to come and deal with the, the traces of pride within us? Well, if you're uh, remotely awake, you will have um, spotted the, the answer from the title for this session and what I said earlier, thinking about the church as body. Uh, this one, uh, uh, another dominant image that the New Testament uses to describe church. It's the image that's there in Ephesians. We saw it briefly yesterday. Uh, Paul uses uses it again in 1 Corinthians uh, and Romans. And on every occasion, it seems to be there to to kill pride, uh, to encourage unity and humility, uh, 
on the one hand, to squash down any swelling egos, but also to, to lift up those who feel uh, kind of lost and useless and, and irrelevant. To put everyone on a level, uh, to unite everyone in service together. So it's a great place for us to finish uh, this weekend uh, together. I'm wondering if we could start in Romans 12 then, if you want to turn, turn to Romans chapter 12. Um, I think Sam is going to read. Uh, thanks, Romans 12, uh, 1 to 8 for us. Romans 12, starting verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. By the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and those members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us, if a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Great, thanks. Thanks all very much. So here is uh, Paul in this chapter calling on Christians to worship God. I think it's a really helpful chapter to help us understand what worship really means, because uh, it makes us so clear that, uh, that worship is not a specific activity that we do at a, a specific time. It's not just the Sunday in church singing together that we sometimes reduce it to. Uh, but he says it's an all of life thing. It's this extraordinary image of an, of an altar. And he says, present your your bodies as a living sacrifice. Christians climbing onto the altar is, is the uh, illustration every day uh, saying, Lord, here is my life to be lived for you. That is uh, true worship and all of life thing. And after that headline of uh, verses one and two, saying that it is all of life, the first area of life he focuses on is their life together. That's where Paul goes straight away. They're, they're one another life. He wants to see churches worshipping, uh, not just singing, but he wants to see them living as one body. That is corporate worship, uh, rightly defined. He wants them doing the one another things well. He wants them working as a team, serving and loving. It's, it's very practical, uh, very real life. It's all of life, worship as one body. And this, of course, is where pride is, is such a problem, uh, because pride will stop me from serving and loving others. It's quite easy, I think, isn't it, to think of a, of a church family and think, well, when it comes to my service and my love of people, I'm happy enough to, to serve um, kind of these people, are the ones I value, are the ones I find it easy to, to be around with, uh, to be around. Um, but surely you're not suggesting I should serve, um, not looking at anyone particular here, uh, this kind of person or him or her. Um, surely that's too much. And I think Paul knows the temptation. And so he says to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment. Are you too good 
to serve others. It's very easy to think church family is made up of uh, somebodies and nobodies. Uh, I asked this question in our church a while ago. I said if we were to, if we had to make that distinction, you had to divide church into the somebodies and the nobodies, I wonder how you would do it. If we had to define, uh, divide everyone who's in this room and we line up the, the somebodies against this wall uh, and the nobodies against this wall, um, I wonder who makes, who makes the grade. Maybe Andy, seems kind of important. Uh, maybe elders, maybe other people who appear on the website, they seem kind of uh, important. Anyone who's, whose name you know, uh, maybe they're kind of important. The musicians, um, ways, in which we find, ways in which we find to, to think of people as important. But then who do we usher towards this wall? Uh, people who don't seem to make much of a contribution, people who you find difficult or draining, perhaps people you're ashamed to say if they didn't turn up for a few weeks, you, you wouldn't notice. And what about yourself? Which wall do you uh, go towards? Important enough to go over here? Or do you shuffle quietly over to this wall because you don't think you matter very much? Don't think about that for too long, because actually that's a poisonous way of thinking about uh, church. That is thinking that is conformed to the world, actually, the, the way, you, uh, a way, a worldly way of valuing people. And one of the hardest and most important ways we need to be transformed by our renewed minds that Paul is talking about here is to think completely differently about the church. And he says, think of it as a body. And the body is a brilliant illustration, isn't it? Because bodies are made up of all sorts of different parts that are essential to it operating properly. And if the church is a body, then there is no such thing as a somebody and a nobody. Everyone is a part body. We are all part bodies. There are no uh, somebodies and nobodies uh, in church. We have different roles, different personalities, different gifts, but all important. And indeed, the language here is, is more integrated than that. Paul says we all belong to one another. Isn't that an amazing idea? Verse 5, individually members of one another. As you can say, I'm a member of you. You're a member of me. It's like saying I'm a hand to you and you're, you're an arm to me. The people sitting around you are your extended body. So it's an incredibly uh, close and strong bond, isn't it? Uh, we are linked just as much as my left hand and right hand are linked or my ears and mouth or my brain and mouth, which often breaks down, but, but a stronger, a stronger link uh, than that, perhaps. And if you're joined like that, it means that, that the well-being of others matters to you in a very real way. If the left leg of the body is broken, then the whole body struggles to walk. And we care for one another then because we are part of one another. And, and the idea of a church with 20 superstar Christians and 100 uh, others who get left behind simply doesn't make sense. If part of the body is injured or weak or suffering or simply not growing, it affects the whole body. We are all uh, affected. And so the renewed mind engaged in true worship looks not just at my own personal Christian journey, but has my eyes open to the spiritual health and well-being of all those around me. The people sitting around you and their progress in the faith really matter to you. They should matter to you just as much as you, <clears throat> your own progress 
in the Christian life because you're all part of one body. I find this unbelievably challenging on so many levels. It's so good to dwell on it and, and to think about it, isn't it? And so firstly, we can say be humble because you are just a part body. Uh, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. But also from that analogy, we can say be useful because your gifts are essential. And that's where Paul goes in verse 6, isn't it? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he gives this list, which is it's not an exhaustive list, I don't think, but a few examples to make the point that whatever your gift is, apply it for the benefit of the church. Use it, get it out, put it into operation. If you're gifted in service, serve. If you can teach, teach. If you're gifted in exhorting, Get busy and exhort. If you don't know what exhorting means, then um, ask someone who's got the gift of understanding long, old-fashioned words. Um, This is why God gives gifts to his church, so they can be used. He has spread around the church all sorts of different gifts. And some of them are very visible and public. But some will be far more removed and more private. Uh, Some will be very practical, hands-on. Others will be more personal and gifts of listening and understanding people and so on. And by definition, you can't feel proud about gifts because that's not how gifts work, is it? Imagine Christmas Day and you open up some amazing, generous gift that someone's given to you and you, people come up and start congratulating you and say, well done you. And you're like, yeah, well done me. This, this makes no sense. It's not how gifts work. You didn't generate the gift. It was given uh, to you. And what's more, those gifts are given to the whole body, actually. They're not even gifts to you. They're gifts to the church via you. Does that make sense? So you might be the one who has stewardship of a gift, um, but actually the gift was given to the whole body and you you have the responsibility to, to make use of it for the purpose for which it was given. So you often hear that phrase don't you people say oh he thinks he's god's gift uh, usually used uh, to, to describe someone who's really arrogant he thinks he's god god's gift to the football world or to the business world or the music world or whatever there is a sense in which that this is true that phrase is true within the church uh, each of us is god's gift to the church with the gifts that he has uh, given us for use within the church that also means oh, his where it maybe touches on the envy thing, that there's no point in envying other people's gifts. It makes no sense to look around and think, oh, they're so good at encouraging or praying or contributing or serving in some way. I wish I had their gift. Because we're one body, you do have their gift. If God has given that gift to them, he's also given it to you via them. If God has entrusted gifts uh, to me, then uh, provided I use them rightly, they are also gifts to the church in which uh, I uh, have been placed. If God has entrusted you with certain gifts, which he has, those are gifts to everyone else, uh, provided we use them rightly. So don't envy gifts in other people. They are gifts to you. Be thankful. Thank God for that, uh, uh, that gift in that person, which is there for your benefit and given to you. Great, Romans 12, great place uh, to be. But I want to look at another passage um, on this idea of body, which um, I'm sure will be familiar to many of us as well. So 1 Corinthians um, chapter 12. Just a bit 
Thank you very much. Uh, there's a lot of overlap here with the passage in 1 Corinthians, obviously. Uh, the same metaphor, largely making the same point, but Paul gives it a bit more airtime here uh, to drive a couple of points home. And the first thing uh, he wants to underline, I think, is this idea of difference uh, within the body, the idea of difference. Um, I don't know how much you know about uh, the church in Corinth, but arrogance and pride was a real problem um, in this church. And so as a result of that, they seem to have developed a real hierarchy uh, of the people who matter most or the sort of gifts uh, that matter most. And so uh, by uh, extension, they, they, they'd be very quick to identify the, the people who are most important. Uh, and if you went to the church in Corinth and invited them to divide into the somebodies and nobodies, I think it would be an absolute scrum. Everyone, it seems, would be flying towards that wall and chucking other people they didn't think really matter over towards this wall. It's quite an ugly sounding church from what Paul says uh, in this letter. And so Paul wants to explain to them that the, that difference is really uh, important uh, within church. It's really necessary. And we mustn't all be wishing we were the same because that's not how bodies work. I was trying to think how to illustrate this in some ways you don't need to illustrate it because it is an illustration but imagine for a moment um we are a body and we are very very thirsty and on this chair is an enormous uh, glass of water which we we crave uh, in terms of body parts how many different body parts do we need in order to get hold of a drink of water and address our craving lots of answers all of them. <laughs> it kind of kills it, doesn't it? Um, can we give us a, <laughs> we have some detail? Need some hands. Some hands. Some hands to 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 pick it up. Feet and legs to get there. Feet and legs to get there. 
Eyes would help. A mouth to, to put it into. This is when you start getting a bit medically advanced. Any, <laughs> any doctors in the room? Brilliant, all sorts of body parts I don't know the, the names of. Yeah, so whatever then happens inside in terms of rehydration, uh, every part is needed, the bits that we can't see um, so, so much. And you see, oh, that's just to drink a glass of water. And if you were to watch that process, you might think, oh, well, the hands are the ones that solved the problem. The hands, they look great. They, if only we were all hands, because they got to pick up the glass and bring it to the mouth and so on. If only we were all hands, we could get so much done. But that's nonsense, isn't it? You need the difference. You need the diversity. You need the, in church terms, you need the range of people. Uh, verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And so on. Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? If we were all hands, we wouldn't be a body. We'd be a pile of hands, which is a slightly gruesome uh, image, isn't it? So let's have a think about what that means uh, for how we work as church families. It means that as we're trying to see people mature in their faith, as we want to see people growing and um, using their gifts... That won't mean that we're looking for the same kind of upward path of progress for everyone. I think this is sometimes a, a danger within uh, some churches. I think it's a danger for us, it may be for you guys as well, that we have one vision of Christian maturity. And we take people and we try and squeeze people into the mould of what Christian maturity generally um, looks like. So for, for some people... Uh, growing in and maturing in their faith might mean that they go into full-time Bible teaching somewhere down the line. But we can sometimes give the impression that that's, that's the, the highest or the, the, the only real form of ultimate uh, Christian maturity, which is, which is wrong. Instead, we need to make sure that we are encouraging people in their individual and diverse and different gifts, as such that your gifts, whatever they may be, will be sharpened and become more useful and more laid out at the service of the church uh, 10 years down the line. Um, so Christian maturity and usefulness and service will look different uh, for people with different gifts. I think that's something we are <clears throat> trying to think about a bit more as a staff team at Christchurch Kensington. Um, how do we make sure we're developing lots of different kind of gifts rather than focusing on, on kind of one-track Christian maturity? And the reason this matters so much, that this difference and diversity, is because of the second thing that Paul seems to emphasise. So having underlined the point of difference, uh, he then moves on to dependence in verses 21 uh, to 26. So verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Here's why we need the whole range of gifts within a church family, because body parts need each other. Uh, so to go back to our attempt to rehydrate, the, the hands cannot say, leave this to us, chaps, we'll, we, you know, we'll take it from here. Oh yeah? How are you going to reach the cup? Um, what are you going to do with it when you pick it up? Nice try. Um, so I think what Paul is intending to do here is level the playing field for people, to flatten any sort of hierarchy that says, we are the people who really matter. And we can take it from here. We don't need the rest of you. So just think about that for a moment in terms of a, um, a Sunday service, for example. 
So Andy might be the one who, who busily prepares a, a sermon, but is that the only thing that, that matters? Um, even on a Sunday, which is a relatively small and confined part of church life, isn't it? Uh, that involves all sorts of people doing all sorts of jobs, and they are all needed. Um, and that's just one hour or so out of 168 hours in the week. The life of the church family is so much bigger than just the Sunday service. The body needs to be active from uh, Monday to, to Saturday as well. Um, so we, you have any idea of the number of different things that need to be going on for a church to thrive. So I think that the force of this passage can be summed up in two phrases that Paul says cannot be said. Two phrases that are wrong, which Paul would ban. Uh, the first phrase is, is there in verses 15 and 16. Because I'm not X, I do not belong. That phrase has got to go. The second phrase in verse 21, I have no need of you. I guess each of us in this room will, will differ. Um, one of those phrases may be more the danger phrase for you. Uh, for those of low self-esteem, those who are thinking of shuffling over to the nobody wall, or, or more seriously, if you feel like you just turn up at church and, and, but you don't really have a role, that nothing would change if you were to leave, I think you're making the first mistake, the, the I, don't, I don't belong mistake. Because I'm not like so-and-so, I don't belong. And you need to focus on verses 14 to 20 and be reminded that God has assembled the body of the church just like a human body, which, with parts that are necessarily different. Uh, you do belong precisely because you are not like X, Y or Z. For anyone who is more likely to, to move over to the somebody wall, uh, who looks around, and even if we would never say it out loud, sometimes feel like there are certain people who just aren't needed, taking up valuable chair space, making no contribution, unlike you, um, well, then they're, they're, you are in danger of the second band phrase, uh, the phrase that says, I have no need of you. The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Or maybe like many of us, you're, you're inconsistent and you, you drift back and forth and you kind of go in your own self-esteem from, from wall to wall, uh, one week over there, one week uh, slightly more uh, over there. In which case, we need to remember that these are the two phrases we must never find ourselves saying. I don't belong, or I have no need of them. If either of those are creeping in, then we know uh, we've crossed some sort of line um, in our thinking. They should be the, the, like those white lines on the motorway. You know, the, the ones with the bumps on them that make the, the noise. I'm sure they've got a name. Uh, so, Rumble strips. Rumble strips. Rumble, there we go. So as you're falling asleep or potentially on your way back to London this evening and, and you're saved by the, the rumble strip and it, you come back to your senses. Those two phrases, I think, when it comes to church involvement are the rumble strips. Are you saying I do not belong or I have no need of you? Uh, we've got to live uh, within those two boundaries. And finally, notice what happens if we manage to do that, if we manage to avoid those, those mistakes, if we realise that we all belong and that we need one another, then we get the sort of unity Paul describes in verses 25 and 26. There may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. 
Here is the, the, one, uh, the one another life. No one is a special case, or rather everyone is a special case. The same care for one another. This beautiful picture, actually, of unity in which we make progress together, where sorrows, and, uh, sorrows are shared sorrows uh, and personal joys are shared joys. Just one more thought uh, on this as we finish. If God gives gifts to churches, uh, and if it's the case, which it is, that God has given certain gifts to Christchurch Ellsfield, I think that's uh, essential, uh, essential to bear in mind as you think, what does God want you to do uh, as a church? How do you begin to evaluate God's uh, mission, God's agenda for Christchurch as a whole? Uh, the best way to think about that is what are the gifts uh, he has given us? Because uh, that is the clue that God, that God has given us in terms of what he wants us to do. It's, it's not the case that every local church will look exactly the same. Um, some local churches will have more capacity to do certain things because uh, God has given slightly different gifts to that church in, in slightly different proportions. Um, so as, we, as you think longer term ab- about your uh, church family vision, what you want to be ambitious for, what you want to be investing your energy in, um, does it not follow the best way to figure that out is to think, well, what has God given us? What are the gifts we have? I mean, if I were to, to give you an oven and some eggs and some sugar and some lemons and some flour and a cake tin, what am I expecting you to make? Roast dinner? No, lemon drizzle cake, obviously the best cake in the, in the world. Um, using all the ingredients and all the things uh, I'd given you. I'd be disappointed if you came back just with an omelette because you haven't used all the ingredients. But I'd be confused if you were trying to make a roast dinner because I didn't give you the ingredients in the first place. And so it is with church. God sets the agenda for, uh, for Christchurch according to what he has given you uh, to work with. So don't try and be uh, people he hasn't made, uh, made you to be or hasn't given you the, the ingredients for. But what he has given you, make sure that you use them. Uh, put those gifts uh, to use. And there are many gifts, sufficient gifts, uh, in order for, for you to be serving one another and so that Christchurch will be growing and living out God's agenda for you. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Shall I pray as we close? Father, thank you so much for your uh, generosity in which you equip your people with everything we need in order to grow, in order to serve one another, in order to be able to, to know you and make you known. And we do pray that uh, you would encourage each of us in uh, knowing what our gifts would be uh, and in having the, uh, the heart and the courage to put them to use for the good of our church family. Thank you for all the gifts in this room. And we do uh, pray for for a church that is operating more and more like a body in which every part is essential and necessary, doing its its part so that the body as a whole is growing healthily uh, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, we do have a little bit of time, so we've got a few things we're going to be doing um, in groups later on.
Um, checking out the word it clearly, but what we're talking about 